And for those of you listening in your hunting blind, we will be very, very quiet <laughs> while you're hunting those waskly deer. Uh, safe hunting out there, one and all. As the stay firearms, warm. Yes, yes, stay warm, stay safe. As the firearms deer season opens officially this morning uh, as the sun rises, uh, looking good. You know, when there's been concern over the past few years that this is a tradition that's kind of falling off in the state of Michigan, but it appears that hunting licenses are kind of holding steady. They are. Right now, that the erosion that was there is gone. So, uh, And we need this, for uh, as, as conservationists will tell us, for, for a variety of reasons, to call the herd. And so it's ongoing. It's also a huge, huge economic driver throughout rural Michigan, and that's a wonderful thing as well. Have you – I've – I've, it's not something that my father bequeathed to me. It's not something that we did. But no, I, I did talk to a good friend who texted and who said he was listening to us and it, it would be listening to us in his blind. Oh, okay. Today, yeah, no, I know we we didn't go uh, deer hunting, but we we did go to the range and you know the skeet sure. shooting and you know we did a lot of that. I this is not part of my background either. But when I first started in news in Lansing, they would send me <laughs> on the openings, <laughs> oh, you know, and okay. I would go to the, the the things where they're the deer are hanging down, and they've sent me to a deer yeah. processing plant once, okay. and so I really got an education in how all that works. One of the more interesting uh, pursuits that I was involved in was the DNR were chasing down poachers, and they busted a huge illegal processing plant up in northern Michigan. One of my first wow. jobs, and. It was, I mean, these guys had, uh, these were like 80 illegal deer. This is back, back many years ago, but yeah. So the DNR is watching, uh, making sure everybody does this uh, all legal and such. Uh, meantime, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the pro-Israel, the, the march against anti-Semitism on the Washington Mall yesterday. It was um, heartbreaking. It was inspiring. Um, and... Uh, for some of our J- Jewish neighbors who went there uh, from Detroit, it was incredibly frustrating, and we heard it on Fox News. This is yeah. a story that's gone national. Yeah, hundreds of uh, Metro Detroiters were expected to be in attendance, but they were stranded on their chartered planes. The buses that the Jewish Federation of Detroit organized never showed up. The Jewish Federation of Detroit says they had a plan in place for over 900 Metro Detroiters to be picked up by charter buses by an unnamed company. Representatives with the Federation say they received a call from the company that once drivers learned of the assignment, they just called out sick. Because the planes were chartered, they had no official terminal, and the planes waited on the tarmac for the Transportation Security Administration approved buses. Rideshare is not allowed on the tarmac, and the Jewish Federation says they're not seeking any legal action at this time. So there were more people held, more Jews held hostage yesterday, but this was on a charter plane. Yes. I think they're not naming the company because it seems like the company was trying to figure this out. And it was the bus drivers who did this malicious walkout. Yeah. Right. Against their own employers. Yes. And I, I know that a number of media outlets have been trying to get a comment from, from those folks. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to get a uh, we're going to talk to Seth Gould, who is a Bloomfield Township uh, resident who was among those there. I will tell you that uh, one of the most searing testimonials we heard was from uh, Rachel Goldberg, the mother of Hirsch Goldberg. This is the young man who was taken from the music festival. We know that yes. he lost his arm, his arm uh, as as part of that. And she was the voice of the families yesterday. We hostage families have lived the last 39 days in slow motion torment. For 38 nights, none of us have slept the real sleep 
of the before. We all have third degree burns on our souls. Our hearts are bruised and seeping with misery. Wow. It's, um, and then she spoke for the hostages. She became the voice of the hostages. And she said, whether you're on college campuses, whether you're in the halls of academia, whether you're in the halls of Congress, they have one question for you, these hostages. Why is the world accepting that 240 human beings from almost 30 countries have been stolen and buried alive? Because they are in those the Hamas caves yes. and and uh, tunnels. And we did see, I mean, we, we saw the best and the worst of Congress yesterday. We saw oh, Speaker Mike Johnson with Chuck Schumer, Senator Johnny Ernst, Mitch McConnell wasn't there, mm-hmm. and Hakeem Jeffries, the big four of Congress. Jews, evangelical Christians, whites, blacks, standing arm in arm Republican in the face. Republican and Democrat. Yes, yes. In the face of growing anti-Semitism, it was a moment. It was it was one of those things for you saying, this is the kind of free expression and the kind of bipartisanship we need to see. And then inside the halls of Congress, something else was going on. What is going on at the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee hearing yesterday? An argument almost turned into a fistfight between GOP Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma and the president of the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien. So this exchange occurs where they hearken back to some Twitter fight they had, you know, where they called each other names, said, I'm going to fight you. Well, Mullen read aloud O'Brien's original tweet where he called him names and challenged him. And that's when the senator said, sir, this is a time. This is a place you want to run your mouth. We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Committee Chair Senator Bernie Sanders stepping in before the two men could come to blows. Okay, you know, you're a United States Senator. Active. Okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Hold it. Hold it. If we can, no, I have the mic. It went on for six minutes. I'm laughing over here because this is ridiculous. (laughs) It is so so ridiculous. So you've got Mullen saying, you get your butt up. No, you get your butt up. You stand your butt up. And then there's Bernie Sanders. Would somebody please help me get my butt up? (laughs) He made a good point. If you agree with him politically or not, you are a United States senator. Where is the decorum? Is this like the stick on the shoulder and you're going around and, you know, knock the stick off my shoulder? You do it. You do it. You do it. Yeah. And Mullen was asked afterwards, I mean, shouldn't we expect more of our senators. And he said, well, this went on all the time in the 1800s. There were duels all the time, and maybe we should go back to these duels. And yeah. Andrew Jackson uh, got into 11 duels when he right. was president. And he was 9-0, and 0, he said, <laughs> on the duels. <laughs> and then on the other side of Congress, Kevin McCarthy is accused of um, hitting someone in the back, Representative Tim Burchett of Tennessee. Yeah, a kidney in shot. In the kidneys. What? <laughs> What is wrong? And it was captured on Mike as an, as an NPR reporter was marching alongside uh, Burchett, trying to ask him some questions. And Burchett, you know, acting all the way to saying, Kevin, did you see that? Kevin, you know, you, you hit me in the back. And then you McCarthy know. said, if I kidney punched him, he'd be on the ground. Well, I kind That's of. That's a direct quote. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Adam Kinzinger said that, it, it, that uh, McCarthy did it twice to him. Right. So, uh, yeah. So Ridiculous. the absolute best that Congress can do yeah. on them all. And then the, the, the just the stuff that drives you crazy. Silly. Yeah. Um, meantime, uh, some uh, another sad exchange uh, at the Oxford Community Schools meeting, Lloyd, with yeah. just the, the, the raw 
pain of these parents on display. The Oxford School Board made their first public statement since the independent report on the Oxford High School shooting and concluded that the tragedy could have been prevented by the district. The school board uh, apologized to all Oxford students, the victims, families, and staff in a meeting yesterday. However, numerous parents expressed that an apology alone is insufficient and are calling for the removal of board members. We're taking action at every level to remove you if you won't do it yourself, so the choice is yours. If you want to make this a whole public process, but what you're doing is inappropriate, and we're done. And a uh, guy with the second anniversary of the shooting approaching, many of the community are still experiencing this profound pain, and they express their dissatisfaction with the slow progress made towards implementing reforms and preventing future tragedies. And let's, uh, I mean, underscoring all of this, the Guidepost Solutions report showed yes. that all of this was avoidable. Mm-hmm. The people that were in that interacted with the shooter that day, they still have their jobs. And at least two of the board members, there's been big turnover since then on yeah. the board, but two remaining board members who served during that time. You, you, you put the district through a painful recall fight or do you just step inside? And, and a lot of the parents say, say, we still don't know everything that happened because so many people refused to participate in this report. Yeah. Uh, much more on your JR morning when we return. So, more stuff to get to than we have time, and that's hard to believe in a three-hour show, but we're <laughs> going to do it. We'll get you started on your day. And again, good luck to our hunters and be safe out there. This is JR Morning. My old colleague, Mary Conway, on, on this day of all days, used to open the mic and say, Run, Bambi, run! <laughs> oh, oh, Mary. Hey, we're starting out in the green uh, for market futures. Uh, the Dow Jones, S&P, NASDAQ, all trending upwards on the futures market. This is after a nearly 500-point rally yesterday. Apparently, the market's believing that yesterday's inflation report signals that uh, there, there is no more interest rate bumps needed uh, from the <coughs> excuse me from uh, the Federal Reserve, so we are uh, going to be looking for some more signals for them. The headline in the Wall Street Journal this morning: the elusive soft landing is coming into view, and this notion that you can fight inflation without driving the economy off the cliff and into a recession. So we'll see what the market, uh, how the market reacts today. Uh, shelter prices were up significantly last month. Uh, the reason the report came in so well was because gasoline and energy uh, fell. So there were still some troubling signs in there. But for the most part, folks are uh, looking at this and saying, hey, uh, we could get through very well here. The top five large U.S. airports, according to Wall Street Journal Travel, Phoenix, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Atlanta, number five, uh, with an overall score just two points off of Phoenix, Detroit Metro Airport. I uh, love our airport. I do too. I, I tell you what, they didn't get it's it come right. A long way. As as much as they've put into LAX, LAX is still a nightmare. Atlanta is way too crowded, oh, too many God. delays. We deserve to be number somewhere in the top two or you top should. three. Yeah. I love they it. They got it wrong. There's so many things to do. It's it's bright. It's clean. It's wonderful. Mm, yeah. Nice places to eat. I've been, not been paid for the spark sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's no compensation for it. No, prohibited. Yeah. Um, we've got uh, an update on the Samantha Wall murder that has so troubled. And as uh, Jamie, you pointed out, she would have been on those buses. She would have been on those flights she yesterday. She would have been at, at the rally. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the Detroit Police Department said its detectives are working on presenting their case to, prosec- to the prosecutor's office 
And this is just days after releasing a suspect without charges and the October killing of Samantha Wall. They released a statement yesterday, the Detroit Police Department. It read, despite recent developments, the Detroit Police Department's homicide unit remains committed to presenting a comprehensive set of facts for submission to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. This crime reflects a common challenge in our line of work when an arrest is made as the investigation unfolds. We appeal to the community for any information and appreciate your patience as investigators thoroughly examine every aspect of this case. Now, the statement didn't directly address the release of the suspect, nor did it indicate whether police still believe the same person committed the crime. Multiple sources say the suspect who was arrested in Kalamazoo on November 7th was close with Wall and attended her funeral. Um, his November 10th release, it came after police executed a search warrant on his home. Uh, as you know, Wall found dead with multiple stab wounds outside her Lafayette Park home the morning of October 21st. Yeah, we will hope for a quick resolution there. Meantime, uh, the president is traveling to San Francisco. He will meet with Chinese President Xi. They apparently already have a pre-negotiated deal to try to curb the, the building blocks of fentanyl, the chemicals that come into Mexico and uh, come out of China, which has uh, helped exacerbate our fentanyl crisis. Um, if you believe China when they say we will do something, then you're nuts. Oh, boy. I well, mean, you can't I have, take it at face value. You no, cannot. You, this is so uh, we'll I, I, I want to believe it, but show me. Um, we'll hope that it's better. In the meantime, uh, others are saying that the president has already capitulated on digital trade rules. And uh, it looks like unions have already scuttled this Pacific trade agreement where we would have had Indonesia and a number of other Asian allies, Pacific allies, to help us hold back China. And meantime, Michigan State, man, their shooting is cold. Another bad shooting night for Mm -hmm. MSU at the Champions Classic against Duke. The Spartans were four for six from beyond the arc in the second half, and they started two for 13. Tom Izzo's squad is now 8 for 50 from the three-point line, and they lost to Duke 74-65, despite Tyson Walker having a great game, game-high 22 points. We know the shooting will be much better in Sweden as our Detroit Red Wings <laughs> uh, are in uh, Sweden right now for a big NHL uh, extravaganza. Ken Daniels, who's uh, up with the team practicing, the voice of the Red Wings, joining us live this morning. Ken, good morning. Good morning, guy, and let them know I'm not practicing, or we surely lose. <laughs> no, you're you're, you're well practiced. Uh, and I'll, yeah. so tell tell us about this event and why it's so important. Well, it's important to uh, you know hockey internationally, and that's why they do these global series. And you have Minnesota, Ottawa, and Toronto over here, and Ottawa just practicing now. Red Wings finished practicing. I think for the Swedish connection, and certainly Detroit and Toronto are the uh, favorite uh, over here in Sweden, obviously, because the Red Wing connection goes so far back. And Toronto with Nylander and one of the best players in the league, and Matt Sundin from before him. So I think that's what's really cool, and they love to see uh, their guys, their country, whom they produced over here, and it just sells, it sells the product you hope and keeps it alive for uh, those watching the National Hockey League. Uh, Ken, I think it's fun to see the perfect human back, Henrik Zetterberg, Nick Cronwall, sort of the glory days. They're all back with their kids. They are, and uh, Nick was here with his kids yesterday, and we did a, a lovely uh, walk along the water today with Hawk and Anderson, the Red Wings Super Scout. We didn't find Nick Lidstrom, but virtually everybody after that, Krista Rockstrom, found Nick Lidstrom. So we went back in a little bit of history with Hawk and Anderson and finding players and the culture that the Swedes have brought to the Detroit Red Wings. So that was cool. We also spoke with Nick Lidstrom. Uh, we also spoke with Henrik Setterberg. So you'll see those uh, sit-downs and on Valley 
uh, Sports Detroit social channels and on Red Wings Live starting um, Thursday afternoon and Friday afternoon at the 1.30 and then throughout the game. So bringing you those pieces. And it's, and it's neat to talk about, you know, the culture that the Swedes brought to the National Hockey League. And it really started all the way back with Borja Salming in the 70s, who just passed last year from uh, ALS. And uh, uh, now Nick Lidstrom is on his foundation, the Borja Salming Foundation, um, to try to find a cure, which is now incurable for ALS. So uh, they're working on that. So we talked with uh, Nick about that and how close he was. Borja was his idol growing up. So all that ties together with the Swedish connection and the large part why the Red Wings love coming here to Sweden. So, Ken, uh, I mean, with the time change in Europe, when does the puck drop? When can we uh, experience these fun games? Well, 1.30 Red Wings Live, uh, your time. So uh, what's today, Wednesday, as I lose track of days? Uh, so <laughs> it's Wednesday, so it's, yeah. it's Thursday yeah. afternoon. Thur- Thursday afternoon, 1.30, and puck drop just after 2 here from Avicii Arena. And they've made this, uh, they've pulled the boards in, so it's not international size ice. It's the NHL size pretty much. 200 feet long, maybe 198, 200 feet by uh, 85. Uh, so it'll be 130 Red Wings Live, Valley Sports Detroit, and then uh, puck drop just after 2 o'clock. And the best news of all is uh, Mickey Redmond comes to Sweden. So he's made the trip. We had a, a beautiful dinner last night, the last few nights, in fact. So uh, You also went to some like, cold bar or something and had to wear coats. Oh, the ice bar. Yes. Oh, the ice bar. See, you got to follow Ken Daniels TV. Uh, on Instagram, and yes, the, the, the ice bar was wonderful, and uh, we've recorded Light the Lamp, so you'll see that. You need to light the lamp in the ice bar. Uh, real nice spot, 18 degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> with drinks and parkas and gloves, and after a while, you're, every part of your body is cold, but it's a fun 45 minutes to an hour, and that's about all you can take in there, but oh uh, a neat spot for sure. So yeah. it's the, so the libations are for medical and thermal purposes only. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you can write them off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Ken, uh, we look forward to it. I'm sure the features are going to be great. Some great look backs at great Swedish players for the Red Wings. Enjoy your time in Sweden. Thanks, you. Thank you all. All right, take care. 2 p.m. tomorrow on Valley. We were talking earlier about the Oxford case, Lloyd, and uh, there are some legal arguments there uh, directed at Karen McDonald, the prosecutor, that she overstepped, perhaps. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, the attorneys for uh, James and Jennifer Crumley um, are asking, the attorneys are asking a judge to sanction the Oakland County prosecutor, Karen McDonald, because of an appearance she had on uh, Channel 7 on the Spotlight on the News program. The attorney for James Crumley, Mariola Lehman, said in a court filing that McDonald violated the gag order with her comments, including her statement, we don't charge cases that we don't believe we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. After a question about the Crumbleys, McDonald did say multiple times prior on the program that she could not comment on the case. So just the fact that she said we don't normally charge if we can't prove, which is kind of like stating the That's what obvious. prosecutors do. do. I mean, yeah, yeah. Ken Worthy says that all the time. I'm not, I'm not sure that that would... Uh, violate the the, the judge's uh, gag order. Uh, one other piece of court business yesterday. We have seen these challenges across the country against Donald Trump trying to get him bounced from the ballot. 
uh, from state to state. One here that was filed by uh, the the gadfly, the activist. I don't. There are any number of. <laughs> there's it was any not number the of, secretary of, of state. Of nicknames, no. Uh, Robert Davis, uh, who oh. is a serial sewer. Sewer, yes, he um, is. He, uh, he he is trying to get Trump bounced for the ballot in Michigan because of the Fourteenth Amendment, saying that because he participated in insurrection under Section B of the Fourteenth Amendment, he's not allowed to run again. Uh, the the first round, the judge gave the decision to not Robert not, Robert Davis, not Robert to Davis. Donald Trump. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we will see where that goes. And and the and the judge admitted, and he said, no, it, it's only Congress has the power to take a candidate off the ballot, and uh, and this is uh, he he felt an, an illegitimate lawsuit. It's it's going to go up the chain to, to the court of appeals and. Mm-hmm beyond and we'll yeah. see where that goes but it's 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 uh, going to be an interesting challenge but you score round one and and yeah you're you're, you're right jamie secretary of state benson came out and said it's Good. not her yeah. place yeah. yeah that's what she she's, said and uh, she's released the preliminary primary ballot and <clears throat> donald trump's name is on it so see <clears throat> she is not buying into what some of the more militant democrats are trying to do by keeping him off the ballot and she's uh She's playing it by the book. I think some of the articles are misleading, too, that say the judge ruled that Michigan Secretary of State doesn't have the power. She never brought this on. I think it should be clearly stated. Right. And to some extent, and and Trump filed a countersuit, and they wanted a preemptive decision here uh, saying that she didn't have the power, even though she wasn't seeking it. So you're right. right. They were answering a question that hadn't been asked by the Secretary of of State. And... uh, we will we will see where that goes as it, it goes up the chain. Um, coming up in, in our next hour, just want to give you a heads up. This was interesting. Um, we talk about, you know, everything going on at the Michigan legislature. They've been very activist. Democrats got into power. They have had their agenda. They've had a lot of special interest paybacks to get off the books, and they've done it. And lost in all of this are local governments. And the University of Michigan does a Michigan public policy survey every year. And um, they have found that uh, more than half of Michigan's local officials rate their jurisdiction's overall relationship with the state government as just fair or poor, with roughly a third of respondents saying it's good or excellent. In other words, they're feeling feeling left out. They're feeling that there are universal edicts coming down, uh, a lot of local power Mm -hmm. being eroded. We Mm -hmm. saw that with the clean energy policy that came out of Lansing. And they're angry about it. And they're saying, you know, we're supposed to be partners in this, and yet that's not happening. And uh, we'll, 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 we'll talk to some of those local yeah. governments coming up at 719 who say, you know, you're, you're big-footing the bejeepers out of us. And look what happened in Green Township yeah. when they didn't <clears throat> like what was going on. What we was, called a bunch of people, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, where they felt that local leaders had a ring in their nose and that state economic officials were leading them astray. Yeah. And uh, so we'll uh, we'll find out more about that coming up in uh, other segments here. But just as a little piece of news as you're heading out the door. Also yesterday, we saw it was a fraught day on Capitol Hill with uh, some folks throwing elbows, some threatening to throw punches. Uh, there was an inspiring uh, rally on the Capitol Mall. And there was also behind the scenes a, uh, a, a closed door briefing showing the video of the Hamas attack on Israel. On October 7th and witnessing that was Congresswoman Debbie Dingell who joins us live this morning. Debbie, good morning. 
Good morning to all of you. How are you this morning? We're good, and I think we're all happy that it appears we're going to avert this government shutdown. Before we get to the briefing that you obtained, I've got to ask you, the Democrats came to the Speaker's uh, rescue and, and gave him the support that he needed to get this spending measure through and avert the shutdown. Why wasn't the same thing done for Kevin McCarthy? What's the difference between those two votes? Why would Democrats step up this time but not step up for him? God, you remind you, that's exactly what we did. Uh, he put forward a proposal to keep the government funding for 45 days on a Saturday morning. Didn't even give us 15 minutes to look at it. Remember, we did a conga line to, to look at it, but we all voted for the bill because we didn't think we should shut the government down. And his Republican colleagues were outraged that a bill passed with Democratic support. And that's why the motion was made to vacate him. So, you know, there was a lot of, and we had a lot of discussion about what we would do. Uh, we weren't clear what these different proposals were. One that would have had eight different steps and resulted in significant cuts to programs that matter was not one that we could start. Where People are also worried about what order the bills were going to be put forward in were the must bills going to be the first ones and the other bills bills that some people would didn't care much as about like in other words the defense bill would be in January and bills that fund SNAP and farmers and agriculture but what came forward was a clean resolution that abided by the deal that was reached on the budget when we raised the uh, debt ceiling several months ago it was clean resolution it didn't cut everything right eight percent it has two dates in it not eight dates in it and i quite frankly think the most irresponsible thing we can do in the world is uh close the government down so it was a clean continuing resolution and we keep the government open and we voted for it okay former hey. former speaker mccarthy may may remember it a little differently but uh you're right there in the 11th hour but then i think the cause what was kevin mccarthy wanted was the Democrats, I don't know. I wasn't part of any of those discussions about what Kevin McCarthy wanted Democrats to save his speakership. He agreed to a rule when he was elected speaker that one member, it is the stupidest rule that we have in the House of Representatives. And someday, somebody with common sense, yeah. the Democrats, they will, changes the rule. So if one member is mad at somebody, you can't offer the motion to vacate. And he wanted Democrats to save him when the Republicans okay. wouldn't save him. That's very different. And I was even looking at voting to save him until he went out and denounced everybody on Sunday talk shows on top of all of that. So. Okay. I, I, I don't want to get too bogged down because you did get some insights yesterday. and Yeah, I, I just want to uh, um, ask about the uh, meeting that you had yesterday where you saw that, that video and, and your thoughts on that. I did not sleep last night. It was pure evil. Uh, I, I have been attacked, as some of you know, for saying that I unequivocally condemned Hamas for what happened on October 7th. There are those that scream and say that there is no evidence, there is no proof. What I saw in that video, in that film, it was a briefing it, it was really just a viewing of this horrific 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 scene that occurred that day and i did not change how i felt about hamas 
They are evil. It was pure evil that anybody could do that. But I also want to say to you all this morning Mm -hmm. that that is Hamas. And that innocent Palestinians died that day as well. Uh, We need to be very careful to distinguish between Hamas and the Palestinians that are living in Gaza. And I don't, I, I want to know why we're fighting between who should die. I don't want anybody else to die. But Hamas is an evil force in the Mideast. Yeah, at least there was a, a showing of solidarity on the mall. That was at least uplifting, was it not? There were, yeah, this is what I want to say to you. The Palestinians came to, and Arab Americans and Muslims were in Washington uh, a week ago Saturday. And it was people of the Jewish faith. And people have a right to come together, to support each other, to find. I've spent more time with these two communities, listening to them, being yelled at mm-hmm. them, being threatened by them, bad death threats. Um, uh, we had to find a way. Our, I remember 9-11. And I remember John and I coming home immediately to make sure that there was not a backlash in the Arab American community. And this community came together. And I have never seen feelings as raw or as angry uh, as what I have experienced in the last five weeks. I've had some of the worst moments that I can remember. And I have spent time with family. Last night, I ended up at something, wasn't planning on it happening, but a group of Arab American Muslim businessmen intense, intense conversation. And a man brought up his family, showed me his aunt and his uncle and his cousins. And as I looked, this is a picture you and I would look of, of extended family. And I knew he was going to tell me they were all dead before he did. People are dying on both sides. And, you know, we had our classified briefing yesterday and our classified briefings are a joke. I won't say anything. I haven't read in the paper, but they're, you know, in a paper, yes, they're in this hospital now. Hamas is hiding in this hospital. But I don't want the children there to die. These horrific preemie, premature babies are yeah. being wrapped in tin foil. Mm, children right. are being operated on that don't have any medicine. Hamas or we've got to get humanitarian aid in there. People do not have. We say we're going to give them four hours each day so uh, humanitarian aid can get there. But it can't be held on to. We need to be getting the food, the medicine, the water to these to the people that that are in there. And there's still Americans that are there, by the way. The Israelis have said that there will be incubators following them in as soon as they can secure that hospital. And let's pray to God that, that that's true <laughs> and that that can be done humanely and that we can save those three dozen or so babies that are there. It's just horrific. Yeah. I mean, I just don't want to see anybody else die. I just, no. but, the, but Hamas was evil. The scenes of October 7th, all I'm going to say about it, it's sheer evil, and I probably will not sleep again for a long well, time. Well, I, 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 I thank you for your discretion in not sharing the, the horrible details, but the, the pain in your voice is enough. The reports were that you were visibly shaken when you came out, and I, I felt for you. But thanks for sharing the story, Debbie, and, and what's, uh, what's, uh, what's, Going on, excuse me? No, I just wanted to know if your colleague was in that meeting too, Rashida Tlaib. No, she was not. Okay. All right. Debbie, thank you. And uh, thanks for sharing that moment and, and the, the, the latest 
uh, from the house. Take care and have a good trip home at the end of the week and, and a wonderful Thanksgiving if we don't talk to you before then. You too. I can't wait to get home. <laughs> Amen. Debbie Dingle on Capitol Hill. It's 648. It is not just the opening day of firearms deer season. It is also National Recycling Day or America Recycles Day, a day we set aside to try to promote the the better use of our resources, reuse, uh, recycle. Uh, Shane Thompson is Executive Vice President of Strategy and Business Development for Serba Solutions. That's a materials and management company uh, for batteries and scrap materials that can be recycled. They got a place out in Wixom and Shane Thompson joins us this morning. Shane, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. In, in terms of getting the the raw resources to you, the batteries that we've exhausted, rather than just showing uh, throwing them in the trash, are we doing a decent job of of sending this to the proper uh, recycling and resource management agencies? We certainly can do better. Um, there's a, a lot of batteries out there. It's it's been kind of subtle, um, but you know, all of us I think walk around with you know, a phone and a laptop and, you know, our earphones. And so batteries are out there. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity to um, get more of them recycled. There is a, a movement underway in the state of Michigan to initiate some new recycling rules um, to make recycling a higher priority, um, a statewide priority. We kind of see it as a county by county thing now and to try to bring more of that together. Do you think that can be successful, and how important is that? I think it's definitely important. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, that would help the consumer is just that kind of identification of where can I take them. Um, at Service Solutions, we offer kind of a business-to-business um, recycling kit where you can kind of put all your batteries in, and you'll know the batteries are going to be taken care of. I think that needs to be layered on with other programs and kind of at that state and like you said, county level of being able to let folks know, hey, here's where you can take your batteries and they're going to be recycled. And all of those, as you pointed out earlier, all of those very renewable resources can then get used back into the supply chain for new material. Do we know uh, like all of the things that can be recycled? A lot of times you talk about recycling, you start talking about plastics and, and cans and those kind of things. But, you know, there's batteries, there's... But, yeah, some plastics are okay and yeah. some aren't. Uh, television sets, you know, you can recycle. I mean, you know, you know, do we know everything it is to recycle what we, what we should be doing? Yeah, at Service Solutions, we're focused, you know, exclusively on the battery portion, but you're, you're right. There's a lot of overlap in the broader conversation about yes. the need to recycle, right? And I think manufacturers now are becoming more aware of the product lifespan. And, and here's the thing that's really interesting. Obviously, there's a tremendous environmental benefit to recycling, but there's also a supply chain benefit, right? A lot of these, you know, minerals come from all over the world. So to have kind of more local sourcing, it's better from a logistics standpoint, a, a handling standpoint. And again, on top of all of that, there is a tremendous environmental benefit. So I think overall products are, are being looked at to for their recyclability, but um, you know, it's a path we're, we're marching down. Shane, what is the proper thing to do if you're a regular person in your house and say your child's, you know, bare batteries are dead? What am I supposed to do? 
Yeah, it, it, it really it depends on kind of some communities and um, will have household hazards or household waste collection or household drop-off points. So I think the okay. first thing you would want to do is, is check with kind of your local municipality and see if they offer that service. Um, we work with other companies. There's a, a company called Call to Recycle that we work with in helping them recycle their, the batteries that they collect, but they're kind of funded by the manufacturers to help raise awareness. So there's a couple resources out there. And, and again, uh, like I said, at Service Solutions, we do offer some, some recycling kits that, that are helpful. If I'm not mistaken, I think Home Depot has a recycling center in each one of their stores where you can take some of these things back. I, you might want to check it. They whether sure do. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, for sure. We should point out that Michigan, I mean, we were one of the first to have a bottle bill, and we're kind of the leaders in recycling back in the day. The national average uh, is 34% of all recyclable materials do get recycled. Here in Michigan, the average is 21%. We're, we're lagging big yeah. time. Well, the COVID had something to do with that. Yeah, Stop we're up since COVID. COVID. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It did rebound then. A lot of us were afraid to, you know, they kind of paused recycling. What else do we need to do? Uh, Shane, to, to to get those numbers up. Yeah, I think I think raising awareness again for us in the battery space because so many times the battery is embedded in a device. So I, I call it a little bit of the fog of productization, right? There's that realization that well, that's my phone. Yeah, but it's also a battery, right? And it's my laptop, but yeah, it's also a battery. So for us, we're really focused on raising awareness about the the battery portion and getting. The, the batteries uh, back for recycling, but you brought up Michigan and the bottle bill. That's a really, that's talked a lot about in the recycling world because it, it, it at the point of sale lets the consumer know, Hey, there's a, there's a cause and effect here, right? Like you're, you're already, there's, there's going to be some incentive for you to participate in the recycling program. And I think that's a, that's a tremendously valuable thing. Yeah. We've talked to our friends at Shupan who, you know, they're, they're trying to work through this and they're saying, you know, we're just not getting the source materials that we need to do our job uh, because people got out of the habit. And there has been some discussion about whether or not bouncing up the bounty on a bottle from 10 cents to 15 might do the trick. Others are saying, no, that's just, you know, that's just another, it feels like another tax on us Mm -hmm. that we, that we don't need. We appreciate what you are doing out in Wixom, Shane. We're going to try to do a better job. Awesome. All right. Thanks for for talking to us. Yeah. And so many of the things, you know, uh, the the motherboards and computers, all of that stuff can be recycled. We'll be back. Well, we told you yesterday the inflation report was a good one. And as dawn breaks over this Wednesday morning and uh, the firearms deer season opens as well. Big day for Michigan sportsmen. Big day for the Michigan economy especially in rural areas, uh, we see that while there was a lot of good news there, which drove the market much higher, up five, nearly 500 points yesterday. It's in the green for all of the futures today. There's still, still some things here that you guys, that consumers are feeling. Apparel, up 2.6%. Uh, overall, inflation was up 3.2% from last month. Food, up 3.3%. Shelter, up 6.7% compared to the same time last year. So while the data says yes, yes, consumers aren't necessarily feeling it. No. No. Didn't no. happen in Kroger yesterday when nope. I went there. Yeah. No. And, you, yes, you're, you're not sealing it scale back, and that's why uh, the Bidenomics message doesn't seem to be punching through. Uh, yesterday, we witnessed an incredible uh, so show of support for Israel. This comes as Israeli defense forces are moving into the Al-Shifa hospital. They call it a precise 
and targeted operation. There are three dozen premature infants there who are no longer on incubators because the power has been shut off. We've also got uh, uh, many elderly. Uh, They claim that they had a mass grave there where they put 80 patients uh, to rest yesterday in a mass grave. Uh, So we will hope that this, and and yet John Kirby says, make no mistake about it, hiding in the, the bowels of this hospital is Hamas. We have information that Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad use some hospitals in the Gaza Strip, including Al Shifa, and tunnels underneath them to conceal and to support their military operations and to hold hostages. The sooner they can pull that out by the route, the quicker we can get power back to that hospital. The Israelis are promising to get incubators into that hospital. In the meantime, Lloyd, some folks from Detroit tried to get to that rally yesterday. It appears maybe some anti-Semitic sentiment kept them yeah. from getting there. And uh, they were <laughs> they were at the march calling for an end to anti-Semitism. And hundreds of Metro Detroiters were um, expected to be in attendance, but they were stranded on their chartered planes, the buses that the Jewish Federation of Detroit organized never showed up. The Jewish Federation of Detroit says they had a plan in place for over 900 Metro Detroiters to be picked up by chartered buses by an unnamed company. Representatives with the Federation say they received a call from the company that once drivers learned of the assignment, they called in sick. Because the planes were chartered, they had no official terminal, and the planes waited on the tarmac for the Transportation Security Administration to approve buses. Ride shares, you know, is not allowed on the tarmac. The Jewish Federation of Detroit says... They're not seeking legal action at this time. We'll be talking with Seth Gould of Bloomfield Township at 819, who, along with his wife, Melissa, they attended the March Guy um, in Washington yesterday. Right. And we're going to be hearing more from them uh, coming up at 819. If you can hang around for that, we urge you to come back or you can check it out streaming at thegreatvoice.com or on our WJR app. Meantime, uh, for those that did make it to the rally, uh, it was both heartbreaking and at times quite uplifting, Jamie. Well, it was great because members of Congress and a you know Republican, Democrat, Jewish, Christian all spoke at this uh, at this rally, and so that felt great to have some solidarity there. Um, a lot of the hostage families spoke at this rally as well, and then on nightly news on Lester Holt, he had Abigail Adan, who is three years old. She's both American and Israeli. Guy, you talked about her yesterday a lot. Why aren't we yelling from the rooftops to get this three-year-old free Abigail? Get this Should be on everybody's lips. American girl home. Her great aunt was on nightly news last night. And and, and Lester introduced her. And I, I want to put a little bit of a disclaimer on it. This is heart wrenching, mm-hmm. but we need to hear this. And people that are into the denial phase of this need to hear this. Bar Aza, after her parents were both murdered. Three year old Abigail saw her mother killed, then her father too. Abigail was in her father's arms. And as they ran, a terrorist shot him and killed him. And he fell onto Abigail. Abigail's six and 10 year old siblings somehow got away. They saw her hiding under their dad. And then. Abigail actually had crawled out from under her father's body. Mm. And full of his blood, went to a neighbor and they took her in. Later, Abigail and the neighbors were kidnapped. The last thing we learned was that. Somebody saw uh, the terrorist taking this mother, her three kids, and Abigail out of the kibbutz. And her whereabouts are still unknown. And she's one of 240-so hostages that are still, we don't know where they are.
and an American. And we heard from, I think, a dozen different family members in that sit down with Lester, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, all of them giving testimony to Americans, our people that were in Israel and are still being held by these And it's day 40. Murderers. Yeah. 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 So uh, it gives you pause uh, on a Wednesday morning. Uh, and uh, But as you go about your day, keep those in hostages your in, your, in your prayers. Um, meantime, we're going to be talking uh, about a, an amazing survey that shows uh, local governments are not at all happy with our state government. And we'll dive deeper into that. That's coming up at 719. But we've also got a little something we want to give away to you. A little gift as you uh, begin uh, to get over the hump on this uh, Wednesday, November 15th. The Trans-Siberian Orchestra is an amazing group. They've got their Ghosts of Christmas Eve show that is going to be traveling the country. And we want to send you to wherever they are. You could go see them in Orlando. You could see them in New Orleans. Some great (laughs) warm places. But this is a great package. Round-trip airfare, three nights in a hotel, a $1,000 gift card. So you can do a little holiday shopping. Plus, you get to see... T-S-O. To enter to win, text the word, the secret word, our national keyword, drums. Text drums to 95819. That's drums to 95819. We want to get you registered to win. Really great chance to go on a nice little road trip road trip to see Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Now, time for WJR Business Beat. Let's check in with Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to discuss the entrepreneurial tech and startup community here on WJR. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy. New data shows time spent and money spent via mobile apps is strong and growing stronger in 2023. According to new data published by Mobile.ai, the mobile app market posted another strong quarter in Q3 2023 suggesting that the app economy is stabilizing after an unusual decline in 2022. As consumer spend showed positive year-over-year growth for the fourth consecutive quarter, which is now at $33 billion each quarter so far in 2023. Annual consumer spend reached $100 billion faster this year than in any previous year across iOS and Google Play. Global consumer spend across iOS and Google Play totaled $33.6 billion in Q3 2023, an increase of 3.7% year-over-year. Now, it was Google Play that contributed the majority of the increase, growing 9.7% compared to spend via iOS at 1% growth year-over-year. However, it's iOS that generated most of the consumer spend at $21.2 billion compared to Google Play grossing $12.4 billion in Q3 2023. The bottom line, Guy, in the context of establishing and maintaining an effective omni-channel approach to meeting consumers wherever they may be these days, you simply can't ignore the mobile app channel as part of the mix. And the new data underscoring the accelerating consumer spending trend makes that clear. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, and that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. It has always been a fractious relationship between state and local government, a sometimes partnership where they're working to serve you, the constituent and the voter. But too often, it appears they're at cross purposes and there is resentment at the local level that their issues are not being heard and that too often unfunded mandates are rolling downstream to them and they're forced to pay for 
uh, the legislature's priorities. Dr. Deborah Horner is Senior Program Manager for the Center of Local, State, and Urban Policy at the University of Michigan. They've conducted a survey as to how local governments feel about the state these days, and she joins us this morning. Good morning, Dr. Horner. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Kind of give us the uh, the executive summary, if you will, on, on what local governments are telling you about what's going on in Lansing. Sure. So this is a survey we've actually done here at the Center for Local, State, and Urban Policy for 14 years now. And we've um, done a survey that's a census survey of all of the counties, cities, villages, and townships across the state of Michigan for a very long time. And um, back in fall of 16, we asked some questions about uh, how local government officials feel about state-local relations. And then we asked some of those same questions again this year. And um, what we've seen is uh, uh, somewhat of a deterioration in the relationship between um, the state government and local governments in terms of kind of the overall relationship and then specifically about some of the ways in which the state and local governments relate. So um, back in 2016, um, about 49%, almost half of the local, local governments statewide said that they uh, had only fair or poor relationship with the state and about 46% said it was good or excellent. So it was kind of half and half. There was, there was a divide. Um, today, in 2013, it's now over half of mission local officials rate their jurisdiction's relationship with the state government as either just fair or outright poor. About 14% of them statewide say that the relationship with the state is, is outright poor, and only about a third say that it's either good or excellent. So, so we're seeing a, a bit of a, a slip in terms of how local governments feel that the state relates to them. Um, and, and there's a bunch of other kind of aspects of that relationship we asked about uh, that I can talk to you about as well if you want to hear about those. Yeah, Dr. Horner, what, how much does the shift uh, up in Lansing from Republican to Democrat, Democrat control have to do with this? You know, is it is a lot of this uh, these feelings partisan? Because when you look at some of the respondents who were Republicans, you know, they're, they feel that their relationship with the government uh, declined 55 percent uh, in 2016. Now it's 32 percent in 2023. But on the other hand, Democrats assessments increased from 37 percent to 57 percent positive. So how much does right. that shift uh, up there to Democratic control play a part in that? It does. So certainly the going from um, the Snyder administration and the state agencies be controlled by a Republican uh, governorship to um, and, and then a, a uh, Republican uh, control of the House and Senate flipping to to Whitmer and the Democrats definitely uh, had a, a an effect on these kind of overall summary uh, assessments about those relationships. But interestingly, when we dive into those more specific aspects of the relationship, things like whether the state values input from local government officials, whether they think that the state's decision-making is transparent, or whether they think that the state um, holds local government officials to a higher standard than it holds itself, some of those other kinds of assessments don't really see the same kind of partisan divide that we see on kind of like, do you think the state is, is doing a good job? So I think that overall relationship deterioration does have some partisan element to it. But some of these other assessments where they have concerns, particularly the largest concern among local governments is this issue of preemption, where they see that the state is, is making decisions that are across the board affecting local governments and not allowing them to have their own local decision-making on specific policy areas. Um, that was high in 2016. It continues to be high in 2023, and it crosses partisan lines. So it's both Republican, Democrat, and Independent 
uh, local officials say that that's that's a huge concern of theirs. Well, the timing is just as they were voting to preempt local authority for these large-scale renewable energy products projects. So that could be a part of it. Uh, another thing in your uh, study here is that a majority of local leaders believe that the state does not treat jurisdictions fairly across the board. So does that mean they value maybe the bigger ones or the urban ones more? Yes, that's one of the questions that we asked. And, and we see that there's um, some large differences on that uh, in size. So local government officials who are in smaller jurisdictions and more rural jurisdictions definitely feel that the um, state government is paying more attention to Grand Rapids, Detroit, Saginaw than maybe they are paying attention to to small townships and villages uh, in mid-Michigan or in the UP. So, so that definitely does play a role. It, it was interesting. I mean, when you're comparing it, 70% of local officials say the state is taking too much decision-making authority away from local governments. What's interesting, that doesn't seem to be partisan at all because they had the same feelings back in 2016. Now, maybe it was the resentment was from different sources because we had a lot of drama about emergency managers, but they all seem to be singing out of the same hymnal on that. Exactly. So it's not that local government officials don't see a role for the state to make statewide kind of policymaking. They definitely do. Back, we didn't do this this year, but back in 2016, we actually asked specifically about division of authority on different kinds of issues. And so for things like anti-discrimination policy, um, where there's equal opportunity laws being protecting everyone in the state, or um, certain social policies like issues of public welfare or homelessness or gun regulation, Across the board, partisans said, yes, that, that's a state-level authority. State should have uh, decision-making power, maybe with some local input, but, but that makes sense. On the other hand, there's a whole array of policies that local government officials said, no, these are our local policies, including kind of how local governments conduct business. This was pre-COVID, but certainly this would fall under how, how they decided to, to um, manage the, the pandemic, economic development issues, local tax policy and finance. And particularly, the number one back in 2016 that local government said, we have authority, not the state, is over land use and planning. So the fact that we've just seen the state government really take on a, a, um, a, an area of policymaking that local governments very much feel that, that should be retained at the local level in terms of zoning um, and, yeah. and, and land use planning, uh, that, that was really hard. And, and again, those were across partisan lines. So both conservatives and liberals see a role for state government having authority over certain kinds of policymaking. It's not that local government officials universally say stay out of our business completely. They see a role for both cooperation in the state and for the state to be able to say blanket authority on certain things. Yeah. But they definitely see that the state should stay out of their business when it comes to uh, how they zone um, for their own communities. Well, and when the state does get into their business, especially if they're promoting economic development projects that could be controversial, we saw up in Green Charter Township in Macosta County and your big rapids where, you know, <laughs> they, they went along to get along with the state government that, that wanted to bring in a controversial Chinese battery facility, and they just all got recalled. So there's also a price to be paid when you get along with the state government exactly. or go along. On the other, Yeah, on the other hand, there's all of this, money coming out of the federal government right now between right. the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, the Infrastructure Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. There's, there's a, a trillion dollars in federal funding that is flowing to state and local governments um, that a lot of uh, Michigan local governments definitely need and want to take advantage of. Right, a and they're all flowing through the state government. So scrambling for a, for a piece of that pie. 
Dr. Horner, thank you for your time and the survey. (laughs) Sorry. Of course. Thank you so much. No, no, I could talk about this forever. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's the Georgia case. Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor, uh, alleging that there was a racketeering organization led by Donald Trump, and that was used to try to overturn a legitimate election. Uh, That case is leaking. Uh, The plea bargain tapes, the so-called proffer tapes, where those that have turned against the president are going to testify against others in the case. The videos that you think would want to be kept under wraps were leaked to the Washington Post. The question is, who leaked them? Well, Fonnie Willis thinks it was the Trump folks. Through discovery, those were shared with the team Trump, and that they have released them. They are looking for sanctions and the the reinstitution of a gag order. Um, What did these tapes reveal? And perhaps, do they help the former president? Matthew Schneider is leader of investigations in white-collar defense practice at Honigman Law. He's also the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and one of our favorite guys. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Guy. It is, um, this was interesting. I want to start with uh, Jenna Ellis. She was, uh, folks might remember her. She's the young blonde attorney that waged war on behalf of the president, launched a lot of lawsuits, including one in Pennsylvania, claiming fraud. They all ultimately failed. And she was talking with the president's right-hand guy, Dan Scavino. Uh, and, And she said, you know, I'm really sorry that we couldn't do more to bring this case through, but we think it's over. And it was a, a little bit like that scene in Animal House where the guy says, it's not over till we say it's over. Here's what she said Scavino told her. And he said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump, and everyone understood the boss. Um, that's what we all called him. Um, he said the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care. So some of those anti-Trumpers, Matthew, are seizing upon this, saying that's the smoking gun that he never intended to leave. Others are saying, well, first of all, it's hearsay evidence. And secondly, he did leave on January 20th. Is this damaging to him? I don't necessarily think it is because the point that you raise about hearsay and and what you think this this evidence might actually show you have to got you have to get it into court and if you think about hearsay what it really is is it's a statement made outside of court by somebody other than the witness and you're trying to show it's true and so in this case the best witness to explain this is Dan Scavino. He heard it directly from Trump apparently. That's a direct statement of Trump and that is admissible. But when you take a step back and then you have Ellis saying, "Well, I heard it from Scavino." That's hearsay. And there are exceptions to hearsay. And maybe you could get it in by showing you're not trying to show it's true, but you're trying to show it is proving something else like motive. Or if Dan Scavino is indicted, then that becomes a statement of a co-conspirator, and then it's easy to come in. So that's really kind of the first hurdle. The second hurdle is, does it really make any difference? I mean, I think you made this point that that Trump is – he left. He, he did leave, and that's an argument that's fairly easy for the jury to understand, that he actually did leave office. There was a little course, riot before then, though, that may <laughs> yeah. have helped, you know, Right, him and there are problems that. like that, too. Exactly. And, and the prosecutor would say, well, look, this is like two guys going in to rob a bank. And one guy, you know, he gets the getaway car, another guy buys a gun, and they 
but they don't rob the bank. Well, they still had a conspiracy to rob the bank. And this is a RICO conspiracy. And so the prosecutor is probably going to be arguing it doesn't matter if he left office. What matters is his intent and what he was doing before that. Matthew, there's these video recordings uh, to me that were, you know, released really, uh, to me, intended to intimidate the witnesses in the case and, and subject subject them to harassment and threats and those types of things. The video is out now. The horse is kind of out the barn, so you can get a gag order. But if the Trump team released them, did they get what they wanted? Probably. Yeah, it, it seems like they released a statement of Jenna Ellis that was hearsay. And it seems like they released a statement of Sidney Powell, which she was saying that Trump really thought that he had won. And so that's helpful to them. Now, there are other things that Sidney Powell said that are damaging to Trump. But all in all, if they leaked it, they were probably making a calculation that, in general, that was helpful for them. Guy, do you have... We do. Actually, this is the testimony from Powell on her tape where she said, yeah, even as we told him that we couldn't make the case, he was insistent his other attorneys or experts. Well, he talked about, you know, seeing the vote totals roll backwards on the TV. Meaning on election night. Yeah. And um, the unbelievable spikes, how far ahead he was in different states. At the time, all the machines stopped counting and how it should have been impossible to make up that sort of vote difference without some kind of shenanigans. He believed it in his core. I guess that could be a defense, right? I mean, if he believed it, then then he wasn't lying. I mean, what is what are they trying to get with leaking these particular videos, do you think? That statement goes to the fact that Trump allegedly really thought that he had won. And if he thought he had won, then he wasn't believing that he had the intent to do anything wrong. Now, there's another part of Sidney Powell's testimony that you didn't play in which she says, well, his other lawyers were telling him, quote, all of the time that he had lost. Mm -hmm. And if you're hearing all of the time that you've lost from your top aides, that's a piece of evidence that the prosecution is going to argue, look, you, you either knew or you should have known that you had lost, and therefore your persistence in this was improper and illegal. I find it ironic that if Trump's defense team is did leak these, then it means they were playing ball with the Washington Post uh, and uh, and and helping the Washington Post, <laughs> right. which is uh, in terms of his uh, his fake news dogma, it just is more than a little curious. Um, when I've got to ask you a question totally off uh, this topic, Matthew, but you were amongst those leading the war on drugs. <laughs> Here in Metro Detroit, when you were U.S. attorney, we've got the president meeting with President Xi today. They supposedly have a deal that the Chinese say, well, oh, we're going to crack down on the the makers of the components of fentanyl to try to help you in your battle against fentanyl. Do these international deals really yield results at the local level in in the war on drugs? Well, it is true that most of the fentanyl in this country comes from China, and it is used to be shipped direct, but then there was a crackdown on international shipping, and now China is taking its fentanyl and its fentanyl precursors, shipping those to Mexico, and then the Mexican cartels are bringing those up through the southern channels. And that's really where the fentanyl comes from. And so the issue here is if Biden and Xi Jinping have an agreement to limit fentanyl, question is, 
is China going to honor that? I mean, let's look at this in context. They also said that they wouldn't build in the South China Sea for military purposes. They did that. They also said that they'd agree with the Paris Climate Accords. They didn't follow that. They don't have a great track record in actually doing what they're doing. And so one really has to wonder whether or not this is going to make a difference. Yeah, you would think the president would say, hey, before we make a new deal, why don't you start honoring the old deals? You know, yes. the, 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 buying the agricultural products that you promised to buy under President Trump, which turned out to be a, a, a hollow promise. Uh, but but you're right. If past is prologue, uh, there there isn't a lot of encouragement here. We will we'll hope that that they will. But, uh, yeah, I, I just was curious as whether you had seen this yield actual results. Uh, Matthew, we will uh, wait to see whether or not Fannie Willis gets her gag order. Do you think she has the justification for it? Well, if somebody leaked it inappropriately, she definitely has grounds to go back into court. It would be interesting to see if the judge decides to put some of these lawyers on the witness stand and ask them, are you the leaker? How did this happen? Because well, it's not like her she, her people have been leaking, too. Right. <laughs> Everybody's leaking. If they get to the bottom of this, it could have di- very bad consequences for all of the lawyers involved. Yeah. Matthew, we thank you for your insights, my friend. Thank you. All right. Matthew Schneider at Hanagan Law. Time for this week's S&P Global Mobility Minute with Stephanie Brindley, brought to you by Dana. Dana, people finding a better way. The Los Angeles Auto Show kicks off this week, hosts to fewer on-site reveals than in past years. That doesn't mean that automakers have less to say. Regardless of on-site presence, it seems there is still value in being part of the autofocus news cycle that tends to happen around auto shows. At the show itself, a U.S. market Hyundai Santa Fe is expected, with a continued mix of powertrain offerings. While Subaru is due to debut its conventionally powered Forester, the Lucid Gravity SUV is poised to be the key EV launch, bringing a needed second product to Lucid's range. Outside the show, Toyota revealed an all-new Camry sedan and Crown Signia SUV, both using all-hybrid powertrains. Genesis updated its GV80 and adds a GV80 Coupe following a luxury market SUV trend. Though Stellantis opted out of the LA show, the recently revealed Ram Charger just might be the game changer for electric propulsion that they say it is. Keep your eye out on the news, though, as these aren't the only announcements of the month. I'm Stephanie Brindley, and this has been an Automotive Minute with S&P Global Mobility, formerly IHS Market. We got a little something special for you. The Trans-Siberian Orchestra, wonderful group uh, that is uh, taking its Ghosts of Christmas Eve show on tour it's the best of the tso and much more than that and you can see them at the tour stop of your choice you could rock out uh at at new orleans uh someplace warm like orlando maybe take your golf clubs to see them as well yeah um we've got a great package here you get two tickets to the trans-siberian orchestra concert of your choice round trip airfare to take you there a three-night stay in a hotel one thousand dollar gift cards you can do a little holiday shopping and uh, your prize is provided by Wild Child Touring. To enter to win, you need to know the phrase that pays, the secret word. And the secret word today is no longer secret. It is drums. If you text that word to 95819, uh, you can register to be part of this contest. Again, drums to 95819. And we will have future opportunities and future keywords in other shows. So stay tuned for that, but you've got the key that could unlock a great trip uh, for you. 
Uh, I, I'm Jamie and Lloyd and I have been watching the video of the death of uh, former NHL player Adam Johnson. This happened over in Britain. Is a game between the Nottingham Panthers and the Sheffield Steelers. A skate blade ended up brushing by his neck, and he lost his life as uh, he it, it hit the artery. And uh, now charges have been filed against the player who skate. Uh, they keep calling this an accident, but if they're charging him with manslaughter, that is a question that is uh, open now to interpretation. WJR senior sports analyst Steve Courtney following this case for us. It, my recollection, we had something similar, but it, it, it had a much better ending here, uh, Steve, not that long ago. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when you take a look at the speed at which the great game of hockey is played and, of course, the physicality, um, rather shocked that uh, a tragic event like this doesn't happen more often. Uh, good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. Hello again, my friends. This conversation brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your windows, roofing, and siding quote today. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter performance remodeling sweepstakes indeed police in england have made an arrest in connection uh, to the death of minnesota native adam johnson whose throat was slashed by the skate of an opposing player during a game between the nottingham panthers and sheffield steelers in the elite ice hockey league last month now the arrest was announced just yesterday 17 days after the unfortunate incident but South Yorkshire police did not identify the person taken into custody. In a press release, the department said detectives arrested a man on suspicion of manslaughter. Now, the assumption is that the arrested individual is Sheffield hockey player Matt Petgrave, whose skate struck Johnson in the neck during that October 28th game. Horrific video of the play, albeit grainy, saw Johnson fall to the ice and then attempt to skate to the bench while holding his neck. Blood covered the ice, and Johnson was later pronounced dead after being transported to a hospital. Uh, the quote here, our investigation launched immediately following this tragedy, and we've been carrying out extensive inquiries ever since to piece together the events which led to the loss of Adam in these unprecedented circumstances. This, according to South Yorkshire Police Detective Chief Superintendent Beck's Horsefall, he uh, said in the release, uh, Johnson, 29 years of age, grew up in Hibbing, Minnesota, where he was a high school hockey star, played two years of hockey at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and later played uh, for the Pittsburgh Penguins in the NHL and the American Hockey League. Now, uh, for every action, there is a reaction, and Johnson's death has uh, since prompted a number of different leagues throughout the sport, folks, to examine their player safety measures when it comes to potentially using neck protection devices. It started when the English Ice Hockey Association announced two days after Johnson's death that it would make neck guards mandatory starting in 2024 as part of a three-step plan. Now, while any mandates at the NHL level, in case you're wondering, would need to be agreed upon by the NHL Players Association, there have been NHL players who started wearing neck guards at practices and, of course, in games. And couldn't help but notice, former NHL enforcer Sean Avery spent a couple of years with the winged wheelers, uh, said he saw the video. And uh, did the leg come up? Yes, it did. But did Petgrave wake up that morning and say, this is the day I'm going to take someone's life? He doesn't believe that's the case. 
um, this is going to be a very interesting case, you guys, to follow because, you know, how easy is it going to prove? Because was there malicious intent? I've seen the video, and the leg comes up, but there's no history with these two fellas, and I, I don't know. Well, for manslaughter, you need either gross negligence or um, an unlawful and and dangerous act. And if this was like a a freak accident, I don't see how you meet those those tests right there. But you know, they arrested him. They must feel uh, some kind of way. I don't. I, I can't understand. I'm like you, um, Steve. I can't understand that it would be any type of ill intent to just try to cut somebody with your skate. I wouldn't think so, Steve. But when you watch the video, uh, the leg comes up in a forceful manner. And and here's the thing. Petgrave was going to put a hit on another player, one of Johnson's teammates. Johnson's coming in from the left, and it almost looks like he throws up the leg defensively. To keep him away. To keep, to him, keep, to well. keep him away as he's hitting the other player. He's standing on one leg as he hits the other player the leg does come up, but it looks all, you could argue it, it looks like he was doing it defensively. Well, and again, you're talking about what, uh, milliseconds? Split uh, second. Uh, yeah. in, in this particular situation. And, uh, you know, uh, back to what Lloyd was saying, I mean, was there uh, malicious intent? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I've been watching hockey for a long, long time. And uh, again, with uh, uh, the speed and the physicality. Um, you know, this is going to be, uh, at the end of the day, uh, a decision that hockey leagues across uh, the world, quite frankly, uh, will be taken upon themselves. It was uh, years ago, uh, Buffalo Sabres goaltender uh, Clint Malarchuk, uh, you guys, I'm sure guy in your age grade, uh, you, you remember, uh, but his uh, throat was slashed in a, a crease incident, and uh, I think these neck guards um, are going to become yeah. the norm. Yep. It, was it Clint Malarczyk? Wasn't he also a, a, an NHL goalie that got his uh, throat slashed as well? Yes. Yeah. yes. So it's 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 happened more than a couple of times. Um, well, the, when you're a young kid, you wear the neck guard, and somehow when you get to the pros, you don't. Maybe that changes. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, uh, the NHL is going to uh, take the – uh, Players Association to sign off on any uh, potential rules changes. Uh, but again, some are already doing it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. better safe than sorry. Yeah, Steve, thanks so much. All right, keep you posted, right. folks. Yeah, we'll, we'll continue to watch it. Pat Grave got a standing ovation when he came back on the ice in his next game. So it was like the the, the crowd thought he was blameless, forgave right. him. Authorities have a difference in mind. When we come back, those that couldn't make it to the rally, so are we all in agreement that we're blessed with a pretty doggone good airport out at uh, Metro out in Romulus? I would agree. Yes, I love the airport. And when you go to other airports, I mean, we've seen some upgrades at LaGuardia and other places. But when we go to Atlanta, as crowd, it's Atlanta is crazy. It, it's kind of a you-know-what show. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, Dislike. Uh, Minneapolis, I would say the same thing. Los Angeles, I used to fly out there all the time. My son lived out there. Mm-hmm. It is so beaten down and just... It's dreadful. So it begs the question, why are they all ahead of Metro in the Wall Street Journal rankings? Phoenix is number one. Okay, I'll grant you that. Minneapolis, number two. LA, three. Atlanta, four. Then Detroit. When you look at the, the where we rank number one, airport layout. Yes. Number one. On-time arrival and departure, we are number two. The stuff that really matters. 
this one caught my eye. The gate seats rating. The seats that you have at the gate mm-hmm. were number one. And the other one that I think matters, we've got the best bathrooms, <laughs> according to this survey. You know, hold your heads top high. Tier. We've, got, we've got top tier restrooms. Nevertheless, in spite of all of that, and what matters more than being on time at an airport, uh, we're, we're number five. So I think Atlanta would even say that they should drop down and <laughs> we should say, be. I think Atlanta residents they would say sh- that. They and L.A. should be red-faced. They should be. Um, because uh, when you when you break down where we are best, the one thing that they said, value and convenience. And it's only just a few points off of the other ones. But it, they think that our prices are a little too high out at Metro. Okay, fine. But I also like how wide everything is. You're not up against people like in Atlanta. Yeah, God. Yes. You're having to take a tram to the other side of the world. Well, and the layout, they said the thing with the the trains and it it all it all works out. So Metro, we we think you deserved better. We think you're (laughs) number one. And whether we're sitting in the restrooms or the gates, apparently there are a lot of happy fannies out there and you deserve (laughs) credit for that. Um, And it is the beginning of firearms deer season. The sun is up uh, and uh, this is a big day for rural Michigan economies um, and it means a lot for them. So we hope it's everything you've hoped it would be. And as you're heading out, it's a great family tradition. Uh, We hope that it's a successful hunt, but also a safe hunt. Um, Once again, last night out in Oxford, um, a lot of families still hurting there and their pain Still on vivid display. Yeah, the Oxford School Board made their first public statement since the independent report on the Oxford High School shooting concluded that the tragedy could have been prevented by the district. On October 30th, uh, Guidepost Solutions released that 572-page review of the November 30th, 2021 shooting that left four students dead and injured seven other victims, including a teacher. The school board apologized to Oxford students, the victims' families, and staff in a meeting yesterday. Uh, Numerous parents expressed that apology alone is insufficient. They're calling for the removal of board members. A significant number of staff members who were not interviewed for the investigation as employee participation was not mandatory. Buck Meir, who lost his son Tate in the school shooting, expressed his concerns during the meeting. Threat assessment's in place now, and that's awesome for our students. But the fact of the matter is 65% of the people didn't speak up. So we don't know everything about November 30th. And we know zero about the response after the shooting. With the second anniversary of the shooting approaching, many in the community uh, guys still experiencing a lot of pain, and they express their dissatisfaction with the slow progress made towards implementing reforms and preventing future tragedies. Well, you can understand this, they're saying, and I think, yes, we were going, We want to recall you two board members that were here for this. Yeah. You also have not fired two of the staffers that the Guidepost Solutions report found to have some culpability for for not following protocols. Um, we'd rather not go through the painful process of a recall. Please resign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And there were no moves after this meeting for that to happen. No. No. And by the way, we also have learned that since there are going to be separate trials of James and Jennifer Crumbly, um, the victims of this case are going to have to go through it twice. Yeah. Uh, and that's really un- unfortunate as well. Um, also, we've got the Oakland County prosecutor. She's in the crosshairs of uh, some folks saying that she crossed the line by commenting. It was, I thought, a pretty 
Yeah, I mean, benign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was on a she was on a spotlight on the news on Channel Seven, and she says basically we don't prosecute cases that we don't think we can win. And so they, the uh, the lawyers for uh, the Crumbly say, no, no, we have a gag order, and you can't talk about the right. case. <laughs> you know, she said, and there was a lot of questions about the case, which she said, I can't answer it. I can't answer it. But th- to me, that's kind of a universal statement. All prosecutors, for the most part, say that about cases. Yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't anything that you said. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> exactly. Um, we we watched yesterday tens of thousands of uh, Jews from across America, along with their Christian supporters. It really was a multi-faith, uh, multi-racial event on the Washington Mall, standing uh, in defiance of anti-Semitism, standing with Israel after the October seventh atrocities. Um, we're going to be talking uh, live coming up at 819 with one of the attendees from our area. 900 folks went through the Jewish Federation of Detroit. And we saw something there that, you know, it was kind of like when Congress does something, it was the best of us. And we saw the new speaker, Mike Johnson, an evangelical Christian standing next to Chuck Schumer, an American Jew from New York, Hakeem Jeffries, an African-American uh, House minority leader. And Mitch McConnell wasn't there, but Senator Johnny, Johnny Ernst of uh, Iowa was there. Arm in arm, mm-hmm. hands held high, heads held high, saying we stand with Israel. It was a moment. And then there was the, uh, the inside, ones they left behind at the Capitol. that didn't happen. At the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee hearing yesterday, an argument almost turned into a fight between GOP Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma and the president of the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien. Um, Mullen brought up this former tweet fight that they had. He read it aloud, and then, guy, this happened. Sir, this is a time, this is a place... If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, Committee Chair uh, Senator uh, Bernie Sanders stepping in where the two no, men no, could come down. to blows. Okay, you know, you're a United States senator. Active. Oh, okay, okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Shim. it. Hold it. If Hold we on. can, no, I have the mic. So silly. Oh he, he, he was using the gavel on the wrong guys there. Oh uh, they, 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 they both deserved uh, to be gaveled. Uh, I, look, this was a personal beef. You're bringing it into the people's house. Right. Uh, handle it hearing. somewhere well, We're else. trying to take care of business here. Silly. It's, it's, and just really quickly, Kevin McCarthy being accused of hitting Representative Tim Burchett in the kidneys in the back. Kidney shots. Should we think about putting a penalty box in, in somewhere in the Capitol? This is so five for fighting. <laughs> That's oh, right. God. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was that was that. So the best and worst of what Congress has to offer, by the way, Speaker Mike Johnson managing to get through a stopgap spending measure that will uh, avert the government shutdown that was looming on Friday. He did it with more Democrat votes than he did Republican votes. Uh, the same thing that got Speaker McCarthy ousted from his job. Um, we talked with with Debbie Dingell about that. She said, yeah, the, the Democrats felt it was important to keep the government open. I asked her what was the difference between what happened with McCarthy and Johnson. And she said, oh, it wasn't different. Uh, I think some of the folks may have a different memory of it than that. But she did say she got a classified briefing yesterday because there are so many people that are now saying that what happened on October 7th didn't really happen. And it left her shaken. What I saw in that video, in that film, it was a briefing. It, it was really just a viewing of this horrific, horrific, horrific 
scenes that occurred that day. And I did not change how I felt about Hamas. They are evil. It was pure evil that anybody could do that. And she said she did not sleep last night. And she doesn't believe she'll be able to sleep tonight after what she saw on those from those October 7th videos taken from the Hamas fighters themselves. They were wearing GoPros. And this was the classified briefing. And you asked a very good question, I asked Jackson. Her, I asked her if her colleague, Rashida Tlaib, was in that meeting. She to see the said, evidence, to yeah. see the proof, to see to what Hamas, Hamas had yes. done. She simply said, no. No. Uh, time, time for new representation for Detroit. Um, it is 8.14 when we come back. We're going to be talking with one of our Jewish neighbors who went to that rally on the mall yesterday. What was that experience like? Uh, it was an incredible show of solidarity. It was also, uh, in many instances, heartbreaking. And we'll talk about uh, what happened to some of those that were not allowed to go, uh, the victims of an apparent sit-down strike. And uh, we'll get to that coming up. Uh, right now, though, we invite you to be caller number nine at one 800 wjr to win four grandstand tickets to the 97th America's Thanksgiving Parade presented by Gardner White. Live in the heart of downtown Detroit, you can be there in the grandstands. Nice, comfortable seats by being caller number nine right now at one 800 859 1-800-859-0-WJR. It was below freezing again. It's going to be a beautiful day today. Uh, the weather all over the place. And our friends at CNC Heating and Air Conditioning want to share the five signs that you really need to be aware of that will tell you if your system isn't up to what winter has in store for you. First of all, short cycling problems. Where it will turn on, then off, then on again, then off again. Highly inefficient. It also will reduce the life of your furnace. If you're seeing that, that's a warning sign. If it needs frequent repairs... If your family keeps getting sick, that is a warning sign that something's not right. Also, if your utility bills are higher than normal, you want that system to be efficient. And if the, when the furnace kicks on, you hear odd noises, well, those need to get checked out. Any of those issues, it's time to call CNC Heating and Air Conditioning. 75 years, the Corian family has been working to make sure that you get the customer service from their family that every family deserves. They are one of Michigan's most trusted heating and cooling companies, and they are referred by our inside-outside guy. So make sure your furnace is tuned up for winter and take advantage of the Carrier Cool Cash Savings if you need a new Carrier Furnace. Call 800-MY-FURNACE, 800-693-8762. You'll get a free 21-point comfort survey. And if needed, you can get installation of the Carrier Heating and Cooling System, a new one, tomorrow. That quick. Service today, survey today. Installation tomorrow. Visit cncheat.com. That's cncheat.com. Carrier, turn to the experts. It was uh, an incredibly intense moment. It was an uplifting moment when tens of thousands of Americans of uh, all faiths, uh, but many of our Jewish neighbors uh, gathered on the National Mall, the site of so many other momentous occasions, to stand and uh, spit in the face of anti-Semitism, but also to stand as one in support of Israel and its battle against uh, the atrocities that uh, occurred on October 7th. Among them, uh, some residents of Bloomfield Township. Seth Gould uh, attended uh, with his wife, Melissa, and Seth was good enough to take some time out of his day and share that experience with us this morning. Hi, Seth. 
Hey, good morning. Appreciate the call. Yeah, Jewish Federation really put together a an incredible show of support from our Detroit area. Uh, 900 uh, of our neighbors getting a, aboard jetliners and going to Washington, D.C. What was it that, that compelled you to go that said, you know, this is one that I, I can't miss? I think that since October 7th, we've realized uh, how much Israel means to us. We've also realized that there are a lot of people out there that are surprisingly not supporting Israel's right to self-defense. And even Detroit has been kind of hit, the Detroit Jewish community has been kind of hit with a, a local murder that still remains unsolved, and we're not jumping to any conclusions. But it's been a tough five weeks for a lot of, a lot of us of different denominations, and uh, that was what really was amazing and when what the job that federation did i want you to guys to know i want the public to know that it wasn't until the night uh before leaving that dulles hadn't yet confirmed the faa hadn't confirmed the exact time of the flight and where to go and uh boston had its issues uh toronto two two planes i understand from toronto were not able to make it either but uh it was it was inspirational, as you said, being there on a beautiful Washington D.C. day. It was it was amazing, and I'm so glad we went, my wife and I. And uh, it's um, it, it's also going to take some time to process because there's so many different emotions that you feel when you're uh, getting up early in the morning and uh, making a full day of it, and then some. Uh, the it's everybody that went, even those on the plane that had some difficulties, and I can't speak to why that happened at all, but they made the best of it. And uh, everybody is very proud of the showing, 300,000 approximately there. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And there was no counter-proposed, there was no counter-protest, which we were concerned about. And uh, nobody was burning flags. I mean, we had a, a, a healthy amount of uh, U.S. flags being waved and singing the Star Spangled Banner. And people of all walks of life. I mean, I, I was on a bus that uh, had Hindus and reverends and an evangelical uh, minister. And, uh, wow. you know, it was, it was a really uh, a solidarity is, is the right <clears throat> word. Seth, for those who uh, did not get to go because they were stranded uh, at the airport, you talk, did you talk to any of them, and w- what were they feeling at the time? Yeah, I, you know, it was, it was more about the logistics. It was about um, are they going to be able to get there or not. And uh, I spoke to one friend of mine, someone that I actually talked into coming so I, you know, I'm I'm heartbroken that uh, because of whatever happened with those buses, she wasn't able to go. But she's she still sent me a text yesterday, and they got back a little earlier than we all did. Uh, that said it was a win for Israel and for the United States. So they were magnanimous about it. We should point out there's speculation that bus drivers uh, deliberately called in sick and held a sick out because they didn't want to transport the participants to the rally. We're still waiting for some more confirmation on that and a statement from the company 
uh, that was contracted to provide the transportation from Dulles to the mall. Seth, I'm, I'm told that one of the family members of the hostages spoke and said the world doesn't need to take sides and support only Israeli civilians or Palestinian civilians. It feels like to care about one means you diminish the other, but that's not the case. She spoke so eloquently, and I, I want to say it was a bipartisan presentation of speakers, of course, but the uh, the mall was absolutely silent when the when uh, Rachel Goldstein, the mother that you're referring to, and the other family members spoke about their their children or nieces or you know grandmothers. Um, there was a silence and a pall over that mall, and her son, in particular, uh, had basically half of his arm blown off. Yeah, Hirsch Goldberg. And he, yeah, yeah, and he he's a civilian that was at a, a music concert. So it was, that was the most emotional point for me, honestly, listening to everybody. And uh, and and so we had to wait maybe about uh, half an hour on the tarmac to fly out. And it was an El Alf uh, plane that goes to Israel, the Israel, Israel airliner. And it was Rachel Goldstein and those other family members going back to Israel <sighs> to do the advocacy that they are doing. They're flying all over the place trying to get these hostages uh, released. And, and there, one other thing I'll say is that there was a mag unanimous uh, belief among all these people of different political persuasions that were all the commonality was that uh, they believe in the right of Israel to exist and um, they're not calling for an unconditional ceasefire at this point in time in the conflict so uh, but otherwise you know people are all you know have different beliefs about Israel and the government there um, but that's the common denominator for the people that were all right. there. And we, and we bonded, you know, people sitting in a, we were in a party bus that had like um, a technicolor, you know, orange and green and reds that were cycling on and off. And we were, we, we spent some time in there together and we all talked and, and a lot of the talking was where did, how do you, what happens the day after this conflict is over or is it ever over? And uh, there were some really meaningful and heartfelt and even different viewpoints expressed on that bus. But that's what we're thinking about. The Detroit Jewish community is just thinking about getting this war over as quickly as possible with the least amount of innocence lost, including Palestinians in Gaza, uh, and the release of those hostages. Yeah, no question. And, and uh, NBC Nightly News, for those of you who want to check it out online, had a sit down with 12 family members of those American hostages that are still there. And as we've been saying, Seth, the, the, the words free Abigail, this little three-year-old girl that's still in their uh, clutches, that needs to be on everybody's lips. Thank you for sharing what I, I'm sure was a deeply personal experience, Seth. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. If this committee wishes to live up to its name, the HELP Committee, it's time to help the cause of economic and social justice in this country by bringing victories to the, the, the auto workers just realized to the entire working class. Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, uh, on Capitol Hill yesterday. Uh, no eat the rich shirt there. He was in a suit and tie looking sharp and uh, championing in the, the uh, 
unionization of more plants in more industries, something that he sees as a, a national movement that he has begun, while at the same time the so-called historic contract he negotiated on behalf of his rank and file is running into some serious trouble uh, with ratification for General Motors, with several plants turning it down. What does it all mean? Could it mean that this record contract is in legitimate difficulty? Daniel House is senior editor and columnist for the Detroit News and has seen it all. Daniel, good morning. Good morning. What do you make of this? When you you look at some of the uh, locals, like up in Flint, wasn't unexpected there. That tends to be maybe a more militant local. But elsewhere, are you surprised at some of the locals that are turning this down? Yes, I, I am on one level. Uh, I, I'm surprised given how rich it really is compared to so much that's gone before and and the value of the of the the raises up front, uh, some of the wins they got, uh, uh, like cost of living adjustments that they lost in 07 and 09. Um, yes, I am surprised. But on another level, uh, the cynicism and the self-interest rearing its head here uh, it should not be surprising to any of us. Remember, one of the one of the um, hallmarks of what they wanted was they wanted everybody to be treated tr- tr- treated equally, uh, and to get rid of tiers. And they made a lot of progress getting rid of tiers, and giving uh, temps and new hires a, a much bigger raise. And now we're quoting um, members who have been around. They call themselves legacy members who've been around for twenty some years, basically saying. Those, those guys are getting too big a raises too quickly, and what about us? Hmm. So as a result, we're going to vote no. So it's they want solidarity until they get solidarity, and then they don't want it because they people that have been around a lot longer um, are being treated or perceived to be treated not as well as people who are fairly new. Daniel, it's one thing for Sean Fain to tout uh, these contracts, but, you know, isn't it the locals that must, you know, sell it to the members really to, to get them to say yay or nay? It is, uh, but it's also up to the international, which goes all the way up to the vice president and the head of that department. And whether the head of that department has credibility with the rank and file, I think is very, very important. You'll notice we're not talking about Ford Motor Company. Um the guy who heads the Ford department, the vice president there is a guy by the name of Chuck Browning, highly respected both inside the union and uh, and outside. I mean, a, a lot of when we were covering the corruption investigation of the UAW, a lot of people in the industry would tell me and my colleagues that they thought that the next president of the UAW should be Chuck Browning, highly respected. Um, and I think you see that in the Ford vote. It's not been all roses with the vote. I believe the huge Kentucky truck plant voted against the deal, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but in toto, I think um, it's likely to pass. So, yeah, you do have to sell it at the local level. Um, but really what you're selling, uh, the meat of what you're selling is what's happening at the national level in terms of the master contract and the broad sweeps of the economics, the health care, the benefits, uh, things like that. That is that, That's pretty similar across the board. So there's some problems with the GM contract, but that's not the case with Ford. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think it has to do with perceptions. Um, you, you know, a lot of this stuff is anecdotal. We've got great reporters who, who have a lot of contact within the rank and file. And so you can read what they're telling our people. Uh, 
and you know, can you take that to the bank? Is that how everybody feels? No, but I do think we had a guy I edited a story last night who said he voted no on the contract as an act of revenge because he was mad at the company and he'd been mad at the company for 15 years. Um, that's one person. Uh, and I mean, not a way I'd want to live my life, but nevertheless, um, that's one person. I, I do think that there is a sense, um, there, there's a little bit more of that apparently within the, the General Motors locals. Uh, and I don't know to what extent that has a reflection of their vice president who is new and fairly untested. Um, the person who heads the GM department compared to a guy like Chuck Browning. Um, so there's a lot of things that can go into this, uh, but suffice to say, I think we're looking at a situation where GM, I was just on the, on the exchanging messages with our GM uh, beat writer uh, who increasingly by the minute believes this thing is not going to pass. That At was... this point, the UAW has a big problem on its hands. So what, what happens then? And so she's, she's reading, she's talking to folks in the locals that have yet to vote and testing the waters there and are, are seeing some disaffection. What happens then? Is it back to the drawing board? Or, and, and what would they have? Every one of the automakers said, this is our last offer. Right. And I think, what, I think in the, the, the short answer to your question, there's a shorter, short and a slightly longer answer. I think the short answer is the companies say, that's your problem. You have a pot of money. We'd agreed on it. You said you could sell this this deal. That's why it was a tentative agreement. You were going to sell it to your people, and you sold it to some of them. But it's your problem. So you got to figure out how to reorganize how to, to reorganize the deal with the pot of money we've agreed to. So it, you you know you may need to move some things around. It may be something that someone thought they were going to get. Maybe they're not going to get as much of it. And maybe the temps aren't going to get as much, and the, and the, and the legacy guys will get a little bit more because maybe the problem is the legacy people. Mm. Um, you know, they have to move that around. Now, does that mean they'll ultimately get to the, back to the bargaining table? Probably. So I don't think the company can say it's all your problem, but ultimately it's both their problems. And um, they're going to have to figure out a way to, to get through it. Now, this also depends upon what happens with Stellantis. As we all know, who've been paying attention, there was a lot of tension uh, between Sean Fain and Stellantis. He came out of that. He was originally a Chrysler guy and was in the Stellantis department. Um, you know, does that have any reflection? I think our sense is that it's probably going to pass, but you really have to watch what happens with some of the, <clears throat> the biggest plants that have the biggest populations. And those, of course, are pickup and, and large SUV plants. Um, and to see how how things trend, but right now it looks like Ford is 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 on its way to passage. It's a lock, and and Stellantis is probably. So I think the real problem right now looms is GM. But you know this could change in forty eight hours, twenty four hours. You just have to wait and see. Yeah, because as of yesterday evening, I believe eighty percent of Stellantis members voted yes. Sixty six percent of Ford. Uh, workers voted yes, and with uh, General Motors, it was a little closer, 52-48. So if it, if it does go down, uh, first of all, how soon will we know whether or not this is a fail at GM? And does some of this lie at Sean Fain's feet for maybe cr- making raising expectations too high? Well, I think that's been the, the fear all along, hasn't it? Um, I mean, and, and 
and to a lot of our surprise, I mean, he was able to get a lot more than mm-hmm. I think a lot of us thought he was going to get. So if you look at it from that perspective, you say, hey, the guy, he, the guy over-delivered for what you, you think. But, yes, I think there are, are people who have um, overly inflated expectations. They have the kind of view that you listen to what they say. They kind of view the contract as an immutable uh, uh, law that is cast in stone. And then anything that you, quote, lost, irrespective of what the conditions were or the, or the competitive market conditions, you have to get that back. And that's what the game is all about. And, um, you know, we had quoted one person saying, you know, an 11 percent bonus uh, or not bonus pay raise, uh, immediate pay raise upon ratification wasn't enough and they needed it should be 15. So they're voting no. <laughs> um, it couldn't be more arbitrary. <laughs> you know, and, I'm, and it's like, OK, um, so there, there, there's there's just a lot of different reasons. And I think also it depends upon the plant. You know, it may be within one local, they, they, they may focus, the group may focus on one issue uh, that they don't like, and then a different group in a different state at a different plant may be focusing on another issue that they don't like. So they can't necessarily galvanize across and say, well, right. there was these two reasons why it failed nationwide. Well, a huge flashing yellow light uh, this morning. Daniel House from you and your reporting partners at the Detroit News that the GM deal is in deep trouble. We'll await to see that if it becomes official, and then what next? Uh, thank I, you, sir. I, will say, one, I yeah. will say one thing very quickly. I do think you will get our senses. You will get um, a very good indication of whether the GM deal fails today. Okay. okay. All right. Well, we'll be watching, and we'll be likely talking about it here with you <laughs> tomorrow. Hope your hope your 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 schedule so get up early. Yeah. <laughs> get your rest, Daniel. Thank you so much, Daniel House at the Detroit News. Uh, the deer hunters are out. Uh, The hunt is on, means a lot to this economy and to pure Michigan traditions. We'll talk about it at 849, just ahead on WJR. Consumer spending's cooling. The retail sales report just fell, and uh, retail spending fell for the first time since March. Americans seem to be pulling back in the marketplace just a bit. We know inflation is cooling, but it appears the growth just ahead of the holiday shopping season, will be cooling too, though there is increasing optimism that we'll see uh, a soft landing as we continue to battle inflation. And you can uh, check out more on what all that means. But uh, for now, it appears that consumers are dialing it back a bit. Not the folks that are hitting the fields of Michigan, though. Those uh, hunters, as they go out, uh, they're going to be spending some money out in rural areas as they continue with a great Family Pure Michigan tradition here, which is uh, uh, what uh, this tradition of sportsmen and uh, and women uh, also passing this along to a new generation. And this is the opening day for the firearm deer season. We welcome in Nick Bougie. He is chair of the Michigan Wildlife Council. Nick, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I hope we didn't interrupt your hunt. No, <laughs> no, no. Just just coming in. Good, good. You, any any success to, t- to, to tout? Seen a lot, seen a lot, but didn't didn't harvest anything. Okay, uh, talk with us. We know that there has been during COVID and after some increasing concerns that this great American and great Michigan tradition was perhaps in the process of shrinking. 
uh, we didn't have as many hunters going into uh, into the fields as we did in the past. What's the status of this? Yeah, you know, I think COVID really um, kind of ignited a passion in people to to, to get outside and, and reconnect with the outdoors. Um, you know, Michigan, we have almost, you know, a half a million hunters and, and over a million anglers. We we've we've seen a slight dip less than um you know less than in years past there's less than one percent um sort of decrease in license sales from from last year but we've seen you know we've seen and people that have the opportunities so um you know maybe retirees people over the age of 65 we've seen an increase in license sales we've seen an increase in license sales for first-time hunters um, you know, women um, are slightly down, but they're they're also you know one of the fastest growing demographics. And so I think if given the opportunity and the time to go outside and and be in nature, uh, people people tend to choose that. You know, it's also a time where you know people are are really struggling when it comes to to food and you know putting. Uh, food on their tables and the sportsmen and the sportswomen who are out there today and throughout the season, they, they give back a lot. They, they donate some of that venison to, to the hungry. Yeah. We've, uh, hunters have donated over a million pounds to, uh, you know, hunters for the hungry, uh, since it, since it started in 1991, it's a, it's a program that, um, you know, provides meals to, to food pantries and, and homeless shelters um, that's something that, you know, a lot of hunters um, kind of, I don't want to say look forward to that opportunity, but a, a lot of hunters take advantage of that program. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a benefit, you know, hunting is, is really a management tool um, to ensure that we have a healthy population, um, you know, for, for generations. And with with things like CWD and tuberculosis and, and a rising deer population, you know, we need to make sure we're, we're managing those numbers. So, the, so the deer herds are staying healthy and, and programs like hunters for hunters for the hungry, make sure that, you know, none of that goes to waste. CWD chronic wasting disease. There are counties that are included in the testing area. So what does that mean? You have to have your harvest tested if you're in these counties. You know, I a, a lot of it is, um, you know, you have the option to do that. Um, so, so the DNR um, provides testing centers, and you can you can drop your deer off and and have it tested. And so, you know, the state wants to, um, you know, they need a specific number to sort of generate that data. Um, but you know, for for a lot of hunters, it's just sort of uh, just a, a peace of mind, mm-hmm. um, and and that's something that you know the, the DNR tries to to provide. Only sixty seconds left, uh, Nick. But just give us a quick update on the the health of our deer herd. We we have heard a lot about chronic wasting disease, and I know a lot of farmers were discouraged against you know putting out a lot of corn things like that that may draw in deer in groups. Where are we? Yeah, so you know, e- even though we do have chronic wasting disease in the state, um, you know, our our deer herd is very very healthy and and growing. Um, you know, I, I think we've we've seen more and more deer coming into the suburbs and 
eating your landscaping. We have deer, you know, an increase in deer auto accidents. And so, you know, even though we do have pockets where, you know, disease is a concern, overall the deer population is, is very healthy and growing and, and the state is managing that, um, you know, to ensure that it continues to be healthy for, for generations. And, you know, when it comes to, to, to baiting, um, right. you know, we <laughs> encourage you to follow whatever, whatever the state, you know, the, the state says, so we keep a healthy deer herd, but, you know, kind of like you opened up the, yeah, the segment. Um, Nick, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but we're, we're out of time. Have a great hunt. No, good luck good. out there. Okay. Take care. We'll see y'all tomorrow at six.